Hey everybody and welcome back to the Off The Key Podcast and today we're continuing our brand new segment on the show called Off The Key Essentials and today I'm joined by my two regular co-hosts, Garrett. Good morning audience. And James. Hello there. And today for the second episode of Off The Key Essentials, we'll be talking about my second pick, Spiderland by Slint. This is a bit of a cult classic, so I wouldn't expect everyone what the band is or the story behind the band, but this album is definitely dick-rided by a certain section of the internet, myself included. The story of the band is pretty interesting. You know, they were just these four or five college kids from Louisville, Kentucky. They formed this band in 86 with Brian McMahon on vocals, David Paho on guitar, Britt Watford on drums, Todd Brashear was the bassist for Spiderland, and Ethan Buckler was the bassist for their first album, Tweeze. So their debut album, Tweeze, was actually recorded by the notable record producer and sound engineer, Steve Albini, in 1989. So Steve Albini, we could make an entire episode about him. He's a legendary underground indie producer. He was pretty notable for his um, post-hardcore band, Big Black, who strongly influenced Slint. So it was really cool to see that they could work with one of their idols. Two years later, they released their final studio album, Spiderland. And that is the album we're going to talk about today. Oddly enough, I picked two sophomore albums for my essentials. But anyway, the band was actually named after one of Britt Walford's pet fish, Slint. And they would form in 1986 after playing a show for a Unitarian Universalist congregation under the name Small Tight Dirty Tufts of Hair. A fun fact, a little anecdote about that concert. Almost the entire congregation left after the first two songs. My God, is there any story that is more post-rock than that? <laughs> well, yes. Um, you know, they weren't, they weren't a very big or popular band during their very shortly lived career. Five or six years. The group had gone off to college by the time Tweezers was released in 89, and it wasn't even really released on like a proper record label. It was actually their friend's label in print. They paid them like four or five grand to publish and release. When they were writing Spiderland, they would write it in between their time on their breaks going back from college. During that time, Mann, the vocalist, he went to visit their former bandmates in the group Bastro, and he was in a near-fatal car accident. And while in the ambulance, a paramedic would call out the code, Code 138, and McMahon regained consciousness singing We Are 138 by the Misfits. This brush with death would leave McMahon in a very depressed state, and that would strongly affect the recording and aftermath of Spiderland. They broke up pretty much right after they finished the recording of Spiderland. They broke up before the album's release. Yeah, it wouldn't be until about 15 years later that they came back together to do a tour playing the album in its entirety. And what's interesting about Spiderland is it really wasn't even that big on release. It, it, I think it, on record, sold less than 5,000 copies and almost got no critical attention in the U.S. outside of Kentucky. It was picked up by a bunch of U.K. music outlets, and they loved the album and pretty much fostered the, the development of a cult fan base around Slint and Spiderland that has gradually increased over the years. Leave it to the British to find some obscure American album and fall in love with it and then basically fertilize the genre. And what's interesting about Spiderland and Slint as a band, they were basically nobody. They were just this obscure little Kentucky rock band comprised of a bunch of early 20s college students who just had something to say. I mean, the album cover, the, the famous picture of them in the, in the lake. In the quarry, yeah. Yeah, it's some obscure little township in Indiana, and to this day, it has less than 7,000 people living in it. What I find 
really interesting about this album and kind of what I wanted to talk about it today is the mystique around it, the story around the album. You know, it's not every day that just a bunch of random kids from Kentucky or, you know, some bumfuck nowhere town get together and accidentally start several large underground rock movements of the 90s. I mean, this album has influenced several major acts. I wouldn't say it's the only album, but it is a foundational record to both math rock and post rock. For those of you out there that are thinking, well, if it was stupid underground until later, how did it get so influential? And, well, that's the thing. It doesn't really need to. There are several artists and albums that were stupid influential. Them, like Shuggy Otis, back influencing a lot of, like, blues and R&B guys. You don't necessarily have to be chart toppers to change the landscape. Yeah, the best way I can put it is like Spiderland at the time of release may have only sold 5,000 copies or less, but everybody who heard that album started a post-rock or math rock band. That's the best way I could describe it. And, you know, you can even hear hints of what grunge would do later on in this album. I know, Garrett, you mentioned that you heard a lot of stuff from Spiderland that reminded you of Soundgarden. Early Soundgarden, there's some Bush's sophomore album, there's some Stone Temple Pilots in there. Grunge took a lot of that post-rock stuff into their sound at various points. Not all bands did, but... Yeah, there's some Alice in Chains, too. Alice in Chains is famous for dissonance, using dissonance a lot, and plus their drummer, I believe, was heavily influenced from listening to Spiderland, especially the final track. That drum pattern, I think no excuses on Jar of Flies. It's a very similar kind of off-kilter beat that uses toms and kind of an offbeat pattern. And see, what I find interesting about the post-rock movement and what I think makes it compelling is it takes everything that rock was doing at the time and basically spits in its face. You know, it's lengthy. There's a lot of build-up. There's a lot of tension. You know, it's not really super hooky or instantly danceable or anything like that. It can be really abrasive and difficult to listen to. Which sometimes is to the genre's detriment. But what Spiderland does that a lot don't, in my opinion, is two really, really good things that I don't hear very often from post-rock. One is that as far as like the really like dissonant, screechy, high-tone notes, they keep that to a minimum. They sprinkle it in every once in a while in their songs, but they do not rely on it heavily through the album. That makes it more pleasant, more accessible to listen to. The second is that there are very good solid riffs throughout the entire album, which post-rock isn't really all that riffy of a genre, at least in my experience. It's really kind of half and half, depending on who you're listening to. But Slint is a very riffy band in their first two albums. That gets two thumbs up for me because that really carries it from having like a lack of hooks. What makes the build-up more special is that there's a riff that I like getting played over and over so that's a very big positive album for me i don't think it's necessarily entirely the sound of the album that is influential but the way they went about certain things almost the whole album the rhythms are all syncopated and they're all very off kilter they're playing with weird time signatures it creates and builds this intense sense of anxiety throughout the entire thing like one thing that always fascinated me about spiderland is how genuinely uncomfortable the album makes me at some points and i think that is largely in part due to the the rhythm section couldn't agree more you can tell that despite the album giving you an unnerved kind of unhinged feel you can tell that these are very very good musicians and everything that they did and the album has a purpose it was meant to be there 
and it was thought about, gone over, and they decided, yeah, this is going to add to the sound. One of the best things I can say about this album, that there's nothing in this album that should be taken away. It was everything there is exactly as it should be. The drums of Good Morning Captain are my favorite, and that riff with the little two little harmonics in um, Breadcrumb Trail, that's kind of like the floating points little twinkle. I can just listen to that over and over again. That has been stuck in my head all week. I just love that little. Just, but putting any kind of harmonics in a riff is just yeah, massive dub. Big win, Chief. Probably one of the most interesting things about, especially the opening track, Breadcrumb Trail, that harmonic riff from the guitar, it sounds like a major harmonic that's on top of a minor rhythm, like the bass is doing a minor scale chords and notes. So it's really kind of a dissonance on top of a dissonance. Everything is clashing, and it generates this sense of real panic and anxiety in me. Like, when I listen to it personally, I think that goes throughout the entire album, what yeah. you're talking about with, like, the major-minor dynamics. Right, yeah. And it's not only anxiety and panic. It's a genuine unhinged, someone with a, a serious mental illness that probably needs to seek help or go somewhere, get out of society. And that's one thing that also really sets this album apart for me. Spider-Land, it's about a lot of things, and it's very ambiguous. But I think one of two pervading themes is mental illness and, like, the experiences that people with mental illness have. And it's not in, like, a very self-indulgent, oh, woe is me, I'm sad, I hate myself. I feel like these are very visceral you know, and they are metaphorical, but I think they are very, like, visceral and real experiences of the symptoms of major depression. Every time I picture them performing this album live or I picture the singer, I kind of just picture him, like, his eyes, like, super wide open, just staring at a wall. When he's writing the lyrics, him just going up to, like, a slam poetry event and just reading out the lyrics like poetry. And then, like, no one giving him any applause and him not reacting to it at all. And then he just walks off stage. Like, he's just gone. What's interesting as well with the lyrical content is, you know, it is very ambiguous, but I think there is a major connection with Breadcrumb Trail. You know, the opening line, I stepped out onto the midway. I was looking for the pirate ship. He's at a carnival and he's looking for this pirate ship. And I think the pirate ship represents this sort of escapism. What do you do at a carnival? You go and have fun. You go and escape and you hang out on rides, have fun, forget what you're doing for a few minutes. Instead, he loses his attention and focuses on this weird tent. So he goes to the tent and he speaks with his fortune teller. And she offers to read his fortune, but he says, you know what? Forget that. Let's go ride a roller coaster. I think that symbolism is powerful. Like that moment is powerful because it tells me that the narrator doesn't really want to know his future. He just wants to escape. And I think that's a really big theme of this album, you know, that whole like ship motif. And we'll talk about it a little later, but it does come back again in the final track, Good Morning, Captain. I will say that this is an album either for quite a few listens or for you to look the lyrics up on Genius. This, this is not a very spelled this out is album. A, this is a very layered album. I will say, however, that I did not get the same feeling. I mean, it is kind of eerie, but I don't really get that like anxious vibe. I feel it's kind of relaxing, to be honest. The, the instrumentation of this album is very kind of relaxing. Uh, and that's probably come from, besides like two songs, I don't think the payoff to the buildup is quite as intense and as heavy as it was. Like I got used to like from the first album. And I feel like if it was, it would prevent this. You okay, Garrett? You need to talk about some stuff? I mean, I mean, my first two, in my first two listens to this album, I could barely even hear the lyrics because I was listening to the original version, which is, which we will talk about. 
I might as well just been listening to the album with no vocals. And like listening just to that, I was like, kind of a relaxing album. It's kind of like a kind of how like good trip hop or good shoegaze kind of makes you feel. Kind of just a riff going. But then of course you look at the lyrics and you're like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's not okay. To to continue with what you're saying about the dynamics with Breadcrumb Trail, I mean, I think that's a prime example. That really quiet, like soft, eerie, but a little relaxing sound is intentional. And I think that's reflected in the dynamics of the album because, you know, it's real sharp. Like, you know, I know we talked about it in Black Country New Road Review, how they have that kind of build up. Here, the dynamic, if we put it on a graph, it would be, you know, real quiet, real straight, and then just one huge spike and then back down. Really, really sharp turns in the dynamics. I just really enjoy the buildup of the opener and the closer, and the other buildups didn't quite hit me like those two tracks did. Nosferatu Man, the next track, I, I really like that song. The riff in that song, it almost sounds like that would play over like a scene in like a Dracula movie. He's talking about how he's got his queen, he met the girl in the last song, he eventually sucks the life out of her. And a common trope or symptom people with depression experience is they feel like they're sucking the life out of everyone around them. And I think the imagery of the Dracula vampire sucking the life out of his queen, his significant other, I think that's a really potent metaphor. I think that's one of the strongest symbolic lyrics of the whole album, that and that pirate ship connection. This was an enjoyable one, too. I didn't quite like the riff as much, but I did like it. It's weird because the track that I liked the instrumentals on the least, but I liked the lyrics of the most, was the next track, Donamon. Donamon, I think that track is very uncomfortable because the lyrics of the song you know it's describing this guy at a party who's feeling super alienated really isolated he doesn't feel like he can really talk to anybody you know he feels like a stranger in the party he goes outside for a second to ground himself the lyrics of this song hit harder than the other ones because there's a lot of symbolism and metaphor and this one just clears the fogs it straight up tells you like exactly what is going on as you have to kind of take a step back one of the lines that really like cut into me was their backs their conversations their eyes staring at me like heads of nails you're a sty to these people you're just a super you know annoyance to everyone you're making them uncomfortable they don't want you there it really directly puts you into the shoes of this guy who has clear anxiety and depression issues and that's why i think it's so powerful and so potent because you're in his shoes yeah it's horrifically relatable for any hardcore introvert i can relate to this one pretty well it's a very quiet and low-key song and i think the background you know just real quiet like strumming mm -hmm. riff it adds to the tension the riff plays, and it keeps getting faster and faster and faster, but it stays really quiet. When I'm listening to it, I almost feel like I'm going to have a panic attack. It's that fucking stressful to me. <laughs> like, this is the one song that doesn't really, on the track, that doesn't really need any kind of build-up or payoff, because it yeah. is, it's sharp enough as it is. I was, I was going to say, it, it's, it's only guitar for the most part on this track. I understand somebody not liking this album, because this is one of those rare albums that genuinely makes me uncomfortable at several points. Especially when you learn you know, what happened to him after recording this album. It's something you don't want to relate to, but you know deep down you do, and, if you're honest with yourself. And, you know, Don Amon, at the end of the track, he leaves, and he has this realization, and I think it transitions perfectly into Washer. And I think those two songs are connected. Lyrically, that song destroys me. Yeah, that's the feeling I got, too. And Washer is the longest track on the album. 
Is it not? Yeah, it's like eight and a half minutes. Yeah. It's also, in my opinion, one of their heaviest. I oh, would yeah. argue the heaviest. Yeah, like the beginning is this really poetic, hawk singing, essentially like goodbye letter. And what I think makes this track really powerful, it's pretty ambiguous. I think you could interpret it as like a farewell letter to a lover, but also a suicide note. I'm going to use this song. Now, this is my second favorite song on the track. I would say this is kind of the song's apex. This is really what the album is about, if you had to take one song. If you had to, like... One of the core things, I think. We'll get into the other thing I think it's about later. However, I'm going to use this as a jumping-off point of my biggest critique on the album. I think James would echo this sentiment. I think that his vocal performance, and even when he's doing the talk singing, I think that is what he should have done for all the other spoken word parts on this album. I do not care for the spoken word parts on this album. To me, I think the lyrics are eerie enough, and I think that him doing the talk singing, and he could vary it up depending on what he was feeling, but him doing the talk singing like he did in Washer would bring home the same feeling but give it a more melodic quality, make it more pleasant on the ears because Washer is his best performance, at least vocally. I'm not lyrically wise because I like all his symbolism and I like the lyrics. I think lyrically Don Amon is the best song. But like vocal performance-wise, Washer is the best track, and I wish he would have taken more of that. I would have liked to see more of that on the rest of the album. And we should emphasize that this is entirely personal thing. This is a subjective thing. I've never really been a fan of talk vocals outside of certain settings, especially when it comes to post-rock. There's a lot of other shit going on that drowns the vocals out. A genre like folk music or country or something, you can talk all day, and that's fine, because usually when you're talking in those genres, it's just you and a guitar, maybe a bass at most. There's nothing there to drown out the vocals, drown out the message. And I feel like it would have been, to echo you, Garrett, it would have been a lot more poignant had he actually sung these parts. I mean, several bands do it. Like, Talking Heads do it where in a song where there's like, and then I went here, and then I went, no, something happened. And then there's essentially like three lines of spoken word. And I'm just thinking, if there were any more than that, it would be too much. <laughs> And then the lead singer of Slint is like, what if I just did this for like almost the entire album, except for like Washer and a few other parts? And I'm just like, ooh. Yeah. No. Look, and I'm not, and I don't think Garrett is either. We're, we're not against like experimentation of music. It's a good thing to do that, but sometimes it just, it doesn't land. It's good to experiment. I'm personally going to say that this did not land for me. I'm going to disagree with both of you there. I think the spoken word parts really, I understand where you're coming from. I actually really do. The vocal style of Brian McMahon is not for everyone. It really isn't. But I think it works here because this is such a poetically driven album. And I think you genuinely feel the brokenness and like the emptiness that is being conveyed because of the spoken word style. It sounds like it's borderline uncomfortable. It sounds like someone doing a poetry slam reading at a coffee house. And if you're into like poetry like that, then I think you would enjoy it. 
if you're really not a big fan of like spoken poetry, then I think that you will not care for the vocals on this album. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of really potent lyrical content on this album. Actually, two of my favorite lines come from Washer. I've got them highlighted here. It's the opening line, you know, good night, my love. Remember me as you fall to sleep. Fill your pockets with the dust and the memories that rises from the shoes on my feet. And I'm just like, fuck. When it comes to poetry, I like I like reading poetry, but oftentimes the cadence of people performing poetry kind of loses itself on me. I don't know. When you're reading poetry, you can kind of read it in your own way. And sometimes people reading their poetry like it's really good and you can and it's the words speak to you, but you don't really like the delivery of it. Not like Washer though. I think his delivery is yeah. the ba- is perfect on Washer. But like some of the other stuff, it's just the plate is good. And the food is good. It's just it got spilled before it got there, so it's and I had to get I, another plate. I I don't know, man. I think the spoken word complements the overall sound and theme of the album. Personally, I think it works fine. Now, would I say everyone's gonna like it? Definitely. I I, I am not saying. Unlike Discovery, I don't think everyone's gonna like this album. I can almost guarantee it. But I think it is a powerful and important work in the history of music overall. You know, Washer, I do want to sit on that for a little longer because I think the outro is fucking brutal. I think it's probably one of the strongest on the entire album because, you know, by the end of this arguable suicide note, he's telling this loved one goodbye and it fades out and it just explodes into these strong, really intense guitars for like the last, what, like minute and a half? Mm-hmm. And one of the most potent songs on the album if you ask me you know when this track popped up and played and i saw that it was eight minutes long i kind of like rubbed my grubby little hands together i'm like oh yeah i'm gonna say that this song was too long i bet and that's one of the things about no i no part i thought this song needed to be shaved down to be honest see i think this album is actually paced very well it is like like surprisingly well given you know all the normal tropes of post-rock the crazy build-ups and all that being Mm -hmm. way too long and you know i think like four it's right at 40 minutes perfect pacing perfect you know it's six tracks and the tracks are pretty long but there's like you were saying in the beginning uh james there's never a point where i'm like wow that was a waste or that was superfluous everything fits with for dinner i could definitely understand this being somebody's least favorite but i i like for dinner as a pair with good morning captain i think it really works really strongly because it builds up to what is a brutal climax to this album and the best song on the album in my opinion best song they've ever written and i think for dinner like really ramps up the anxiety and tension you know it's a real quiet and calm song but there's this looming eeriness from everything that's already happened in the album you know this trauma of what's happened in the first four tracks and it's almost like this deafening silence of what happens after washer and that highlights one of the biggest things about this album is it's highly contextual you're not really going to understand or appreciate if you don't peel those layers back and if you don't dive into it and understand everything that's going on as a whole uh, with this album and outside the album, you're not really going to get it. It's something you have to understand the context for. Yeah, and I think you can appreciate it without the context, but I think the context is incredibly important for this album. Getting to Good Morning Captain and fuck me, dude. The, the imagery of this song is 
is visceral. The ship captain, he wakes up and his ship is destroyed. Everyone's dead on the ship. And we're back to that ship motif that was introduced in Breadcrumb Trail. The guitar riff, I think the guitar part in that song is like anxiety-inducing nightmare fuel. If the rest of these songs had a crescendo and like a riffy, stanky, heavy part as good as Good Morning Captain, then the singer could have literally whispered pee-pee-poo-poo ASMR style into the mic, I would have given this album a 10. Because this freaking song has the best heavy part they've ever written. It is concise. It does not go on too long. It's not like too lo-fi because that was kind of a problem with a little bit of their first album, Tweez. The riff is great. It's just the drums are great. I mean, the buildup's amazing. His performance, the vocal performance is not quite as good as Washer, but still really good. I mean, dang. It's kind of one of those where I'm just like, man, that was such a great crescendo, but I kind of wish I want this song again in like a day. And it's kind of sad that they didn't make any more albums because I'm like, I want different versions of this song. See, where I'm going to also trail off of you there is I think Good Morning Captain needs the rest of the album to succeed, to really like feel that buildup. Context. Like the context, exactly. Like it's, if this is truly a concept album, it is meant to be listened to as one piece. And, you know, I think you can listen to Good Morning Captain out of context, but I think Good Morning Captain would not pay off as strongly without everything else in the album. Like I said, the stories are disconnected in a way, but they're connected by what they represent. I think it's all in its right place. I think this album, there's not really much I would change about it personally. But Good Morning Captain, what I think makes this song work so well in the crescendo is the narrative. I think this album kind of requires you, I, you know, I talk about this a lot, but sometimes certain albums require a certain context. And I think this album kind of requires you to be in a really quiet space by yourself, isolated, dark in your room. Especially God forbid you're listening to the original cut. Or but, the um, are way, way down. I, I'll bring this up. I'll go ahead and bring this up because, um, there is some context for this and my caveat to my personal 10 out of 10 for this i would honestly give the 10 out of 10 to the remaster and not the original version because i agree with you guys in that i think the vocals on the original version are mixed way too low like you can almost not hear what he's saying i think it is a lot better though regardless of how you feel about it it is it's still down a hair so that you can't really be in a place with a whole lot of background noise unless you had like super good noise canceling headphones but it's definitely nowhere near as bad as as the original and i think that's where the true like anxiety of the album hits because like the isolating and alienating feelings of spiderland i think you kind of need to isolate yourself to truly understand it we we kind of come back to this whole ship metaphor this whole ship motif and i think the child that the captain is talking to in the song is his past self, his former childhood innocence. And he's essentially saying goodbye to it, his childlike wonder, his imagination. He's being transitioned forcefully into the dawn of adulthood. Coming of age. Honestly, I believe that's one of the most powerful motifs in storytelling in general. Yeah. And it's 
So, I mean, it's relatable to everybody. And, you know, throughout the album, there is this kind of sense that the narrator, there's something missing, you know. The narrator's trying to escape whatever it is that's making him feel bad. And, it, you know, there's this recurring theme of, like, him wanting to go back to the way things were, you know, how it was before, but you can't. No, bring it back, please. And I think that's part of what makes this album so fucking powerful, how intensely relatable it is, whether you like it or not. Yeah, no, I agree with almost all of your points, Mac. It's, it's really, like I said off mic, it's really just the delivery, the execution of some things that I am personally, it's, this is entirely subjective opinion. I'm not a fan of. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I understand that not everyone is going to like this album, but I think that it is absolutely worth listening to if you're willing to take the dive. You know, this album, it was kind of set up to fade into obscurity. Yeah, it wasn't promoted at all because, like you said, the band broke up pretty much immediately after they were done. Yeah, They, they didn't were... even tour. They had a tour plan, but it got canceled. No promotion. That was it. I truly think this was a groundbreaking piece of music from the off-kilter, syncopated guitars, the odd time signatures. You know, a lot of people would say this is a math rock album. I don't think it's a math rock album, but the fabric of math rock is strewn throughout it. I think Slint is one of the foundational bands for the genre, along with guys like Bitch Magnet and Don Caballero. We have them to thank for what is really one of my favorite genres of music. What I find interesting about Spiderland is it kind of married the the ideas and the ethic of things like hardcore punk and indie music and completely rejected the general conventions of rock music. And that's a big reason why I don't think it's going to land with a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to think about it. These guys were like on some DIY shit. I mean, they recorded this stuff in their basement. You know, they were just a bunch of like college kids who are playing around with different ideas and experiments. And I'm just impressed at how like compositionally well done this album is for how young they are and how little resources they have. And I think that's why partially this album has been so inspirational to a lot of up and coming like indie acts, DIY acts, people who are, you know, not attached to a major label is because, you know, these four fucking goofy kids from Kentucky made this colossal like monster of an album. And what's, crazier to me is that the time it came out in like 1991 <laughs> i mean that's that's pretty much the peak of the grunge era there is a lot of crazy things going on in music at the time and they had a lot to compete against and they didn't really care they just put out what they felt was right they just expressed themselves and that i think that's a big part of why it was so successful and in a retrospective sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. But I think we've done enough um, discussing this album overall. So I guess we'll go ahead and get into our final thoughts. Um, you want to start, Garrett? I think that overall, eschewing the talk of of the context and the the history and the influence, the music is very well done. It fits in almost like a puzzle piece. and the pacing is fantastic. And my biggest criticisms of, of this album don't really come from a point of sheer dislike. 
and almost from a point of longing, of wanting more. I hear songs like The Washer, and I want more of that instead of other vocal tracks because it really surrounds the vocals. Because if you know this album had more in that style, then this album could easily have been a 10 for me. And I think it's just that sheer subjectivity of the vocals is what really makes or breaks this album for people. The guitar work is incredible. The drums are interesting, but not overcomplicated, not overindulgent, not too, not too much. And the album is, I don't really want to say bare bones. It's just enough that it really makes everything stand out more. And the fact that there are layers to it is impressive because there's not a lot of moving parts, but yet they still manage to pull that off. And I'm going to drop a hot take that even though I'm not going to give this thing quite a 10, I'm not going to hold it to the highest name that Mac does, in comparison to other post-rock albums that are just like loved, uh, this is above a lot of those. Marquee Moon by Television, I would put this far and above Marquee Moon by Television. This this album kicks that album's butt, if I'm going to be honest. That's my hot take of the day, because I know everyone schlops all over that album. In my closing, that's going to be my hot take of that I'm going to drop and just fly away. <laughs> if I were to argue objectively for this album, I would I would say that it is a good album. It's well done. It's mostly well produced. I think there could have been some things they did they could have done differently to kind of add to the the unhinged and uneasy feeling. But I do believe that they did what they thought was right and they were totally honest and authentic about it. And I really appreciate that. Not to mention the massive influence this album had on just the underground rock scene in general. It's just personally it's not my thing. This is an entirely subjective thing. I wouldn't say it's a 10, but I can totally understand why someone would think it is. And if you are a fan of underground music, post-rock, any of that stuff, I would say this is an essential album. Understandable. I accept that. Nobody's losing a hand today. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Spiderland is one of my second essentials pick for the year, and... It's interestingly, I picked this album for kind of the opposite reason that I picked Discovery. I discovered this album in a very, very dark place in my life. I was basically at my rock bottom, and this album was almost like a catharsis for me. And it really is what spawns my interest into the math rock genre and like post rock in general, along with albums like Swans soundtracks for the blind or um you know american football's lp1 uh this was one of those albums that for me fostered my interest in math rock post rock you know like off the beaten path rock albums and i really appreciate it for that i think this is a incredible record but i would not recommend listening to this around your friends and family <laughs> <laughs> they they will think something is wrong with you but on a on a less personal note, you know, I think Spiderland is a landmark record in the world of underground rock and continues to be an influential piece to this day. 
At the time, it seemed that this small band from Kentucky comprised of a few college kids recording in their parents' basement would just fade into obscurity. But Spiderland gradually ushered in a new era of underground rock along with some of its contemporaries and continues to inspire new musicians that haven't even come out yet. It's bleak, suspenseful, and visceral sound mixed with its dark, harrowing, and downright disturbing narrative makes for an experience that will stick with you for the rest of your life. 10 out of fucking 10. I would recommend this album to anyone who is a fan of post-rock, math-rock, underground rock would i recommend it to everybody no definitely not not everyone's gonna like this but if you're willing to take the dive please do i think you'll really appreciate it with that being said any final thoughts guys all right well this is off the key podcast and this is off the key essentials and we're out of here thanks guys shout out to Lacrembo for the intro and outro music also check out our link tree for where to follow us we are on instagram and facebook and a variety of streaming platforms and if you could give us a sub or a listen or even a follow it'd be greatly appreciated thanks guys see you later